and literally Rapino from the left touch line like arrows the ball in and Abby has literally got the width of a ball to score and she scores so that's like 120 second minute and uh, so we've equalized I'm actually running the locker room then to get the towels energy gels whatever and then for me momentum we went on penalties and you know that was a massive defana moment for football in the US and um, I feel like that's when the game like took off Well, hello, folks, and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, I'm passionate about exploring the experiences, concepts and insights from the world of performance. And in each episode, I'll be speaking to people who've been there and done it, researched aspects of performance in real depth or have supported others to aspire. And it's my hope that you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophies, your work and maybe how you live your life. Now, if you're enjoying these discussions and fancy supporting us, then it'd be amazing if you could leave an honest review on iTunes. It really does help us reach more people and shares the messages further. Equally, whatever platform you're listening on, whether it's Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube or Radio Public, then please do press subscribe. So this week's guest is Dawn Scott high-performance coach to the U.S. women's national football team who happened to have won two successive World Cup titles and Olympic gold in 2012. In this interview, you'll hear about Dawn's journey from the early days of grafting away with women's football when it really wasn't on the map, taking a lead role at the English FA and then taking the leap to working with the U.S. team. Critically, you'll hear how it has been for Dawn under the spotlight of supporting that team under the biggest moments of numerous finals that the team have competed in. You'll also hear about how it's felt growing with a sport that has emerged from not particularly popular to global prominence. The conversation was rich with insights about the pivotal moments when it all felt really fragile, when results and the outcome have felt like they've hung over everything the team's future, the coaching staff's future, and with that, the prospects of the game. Dawn, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the uh, invite. Good to uh, speak to you and catch up after all these years. Yeah, now we wait, we go way back, don't we, to a couple of last century, last millennium. Oh, it's scary. <laughs> Don't even say that. It's beyond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long time. When we crossed paths, we worked. We were both at University of Worcester. I was working for the the English Sports Council, and you were delivering sports nutrition. I think it was at the time. Is that right? Yeah, sports nutrition, physiology, started a match analysis module. Obviously, those uh, was there for three years at, at Worcester, teaching those modules. So we've sort of stayed in touch virtually, uh, electronically over the years. But I mean, I'm, I'm keen to, to hear a little bit about your background and journey, but you're just right off the back of a World Cup win with the US team. How are you, first of all? <laughs> it's funny, like in the immediate, like seven, 10 days afterwards, you're kind of still in that elation phase. And, you know, it's amazing feeling to, to win the World Cup, to see the work collectively the staff have done with the team to see the work and you know some of the things players have gone through personally to get there and win it so to see and witness that is amazing but then 
you know, after that, it's like bang reality. Like I had a few days away, but the players are backing it with their clubs. Um, I guess the difference with Europe, they pretty much finished their season, went into the World Cup, and then they had a break afterwards. Whereas our players had barely started their season and then the World Cup came. So actually now they're bang mid-season. So part of me was I could take a break, but I just wanted to make sure our players were integrated back into their NWSL clubs safely. Training was modified for them. They were back on their strength programs and they were back doing the right things nutritionally, hydration-wise, rather than what they've been doing for the uh, four or five days after the World Cup. Let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so that's interesting. So you're actually still almost in like the bump afterwards. You've got this high and this elation, but there's a big breath in to say, well, hang on a minute. It may be that now's not the time for full recovery. Actually, there's a bit of an increase in the workload just to make sure that the people that you're responsible for and work with. So you're almost delaying your <laughs> your recuperation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I just kind of feel obliged to partly, you know, like if the players are back there working, you know, I feel a little bit guilty if I'm sat on a beach or hiking up a mountain or something like that. So part of it is that, but the other piece is just making sure the season now doesn't end till the end of October. So they've still got two months. And the other piece was... Now some of the games are on the back end to build on the back of the World Cup win. So again, we got players playing midweek games like this week, tonight, Salt Lake City play at home in Salt Lake at altitude. And then Saturday, they get on a flight to Seattle and play in Seattle on Sunday. Um, and then the following weekend, they get on a plane and go to Orlando. So it's just want to make sure the players are doing OK, just working with the clubs to make sure players are integra- integrated back OK. You know, we had a few niggles towards the end of the World Cup of of little issues. So again, just making those, making sure those players are, are doing what they need to do, and the clubs are aware of that, and working with the clubs with that on some of the for some of the players. All right, so now we're right into the detail, and and let's park that for a minute because I'm that's just set off a, a catalyst of questions that I want to ask. But let's let's um just set the scene a little bit. You've been over in the US for about what eight years now? Is that right? Uh, nine and a half. Nine and a half years. Yeah, February 2010. So give us a little bit of a, uh, an overview of your background. So we, we kind of parted waves at, at Worcester yeah. in the late 90s. What, what was your career kind of process from that point and, and then what took you west? I mean, prior to that, I did, uh, if I'm honest, when I started out way back, I actually started a physics degree at Nottingham University because for A-levels, I did maths, physics, electronics. I've always been kind of like scientifically minded. So I started a physics degree and started my second year of that. And I was sat in an astronomy lecture and I'm like, I'm not sure where is a career pathway this takes me. So I kind of spoke to my dad. We found a bit of a a loophole in the system and I managed to then do sports science at uh, Manchester Met, Crunel Serger. And then again at the end of that, so that was in 96, finished that degree. Me and my friend were like, what are we going to do now? Like jobs in, applied jobs in sports science weren't weren't the norm. There wasn't really that much available. And we happened to walk past a notice board. And basically there was a uh, funded master's in sports nutrition at Aberdeen University with Ron Moore and Susan Shurefs. And it was fully funded with kind of some allowance for, for living costs and stuff. So we're like, let's apply, let's do that because we didn't know what else to do and whatever. So we both went up and did that. And then towards the end of that, the job at Worcester came up. And so kind of went down there for three and a half years. And, you know, that was also a great ground and for applying some of the sports science. And 
actually looking at how you might help the students learn and and so on. So that was a, a good three and a half years. And then during the end of that, uh, English Football Association were expanding their medicine and sports science department, it was called at the time. And they literally brought on sports scientists on the male side, on the women's side, same with the, the physiotherapists. So they really expanded that department. And at that time, I was lucky, you know, like, it's funny, I did a, a talk a couple of weeks ago and spoke about the roll call of uh, of people who were working there. And, you know, Tony Strudwick, Sam Erith, who else was there? Richard Hawkins, Mark Hulse, Louise Fawcett, who went on to to work with, with GB uh, Gymnastics. You know, there's there was an amazing group of people. And like for me, I'm still in touch with a lot of those people. And, you know, I feel like they're some of my biggest mentors in terms of what they've done in the game and, and kind of helping to advise me. So work there for nine years um, in that department and alongside Hope Powell. Um, and again, at the start, there was there was no sports science support on the women's side. So again, this was uh, 2001. So it was starting to introduce sports science, educate the players, even just start to track and monitor some of their training, like initially just through heart rate watches. Didn't have GPS in, in those like nine nine years. It kind of came in towards the end of that. So again, it was all off heart rates, used RP, used paper and pencil for wellness. But then again, the players were also working full time. So you were trying to give them you know, training programs to do on top of their their full-time jobs. So kind of did that. And then towards the end of that, during my kind of final year, totally out of the blue, probably not <laughs> probably not the process you should do, but the head coach for the US team at the time, Pierre Sonagi, just sent me an email saying that the US team were going to be looking for sports scientists. They had never had anybody full-time. Was it something of interest? I was like, of course, I'd have a conversation. Then I would check my email every day and I think two months later she sent another email following up. And then it was kind of like 12 months of exchange of emails and then kind of a role came up. And, you know, I was also transparent with Hope and the FA. And uh, in 2009, the the women's team, the England, we reached the European Championship final. We got beat heavily off Germany, which kind of showed our progress we'd made, but still how far we had to to kind of go to close the gap with, you know, the Germany at the end were kind of ranked one or two in the world. So kind of got to the final of the European Championships 2009 and then had those conversations with Hope about USA being interested. And, you know, again, for me, like I'd watched the World Cup final in 1999 that the US won and, you know, was kind of a, a change for like football in the US and, you know, some of those players and the team were ranked one in the world. And, you know, it was an exciting challenge personally, professionally. And I also felt after nine years with the England team, that they kind of needed a new input, a new voice, and maybe to kind of go a different di- direction. Came out here in 2010. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, and still here. All right, well, let's get into that in a moment. But can I just, just go back and sort of get, get the contact? Did you have a football background before, before you took up the roles with FA, for example? Yeah, I mean, kind of when I was young growing up, there was nothing organised for girls to play. So literally, I would just be out on the street till dark with the boys playing football covered in mud when I was about 14 um, my mom called in the local radio station was like I've got a, a daughter really wants to play football are there any local teams and there was a team but it was like you know we didn't have a car back then it was two bus rides away it sounds mad like in the current world it was like away would take an hour to get there and you know when you're at school it was it was almost too much so played properly uh, when I went to university and it was organized but other than that also like my dad me and my dad had season tickets to 
Newcastle. So still a Newcastle fan, although uh, not doing so great at the minute. But um, yeah, so I kind of grew up playing in the street and, and just watching, like uh, going to Newcastle games and, and whatever. And and going to the England setup, okay, the women's, women's setup at the time was still part time slash spare time. And what got you the job of being able to step into that role at a national level? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a great question. I think I think there's a couple of things. I think at the time sports science was still quite new and upcoming, so there wasn't really many uh, qualified sports scientists. When when I was at Worcester alongside Penny Chisnell, Mark Todd, we actually spent a couple of months where we went on the road fitness testing some of the women's uh, premiership teams and then also would <laughs> would drive off at weekends to, to some football tournaments and base, do some basic match analysis of the team. So, you know, I started to do a little bit of research around there and then I kept contact with a couple of te- teams and just did some voluntary support of writing them simple pre-season training plans or or help with, with diet nutrition. So kind of did some voluntary work over a couple of years. So... Whilst it wasn't full-time hands-on, I probably had more experience or, or qualifications than a lot of people out there just because sports science was still so new. And what was driving that? Was that your own passion and interest or was that a research plan to, to get some information that you could go and publish or, or was it a project that was funded? Um, I mean, wasn't funded other than the university paying for mileage <laughs> to go and do that. Um, so I think I think it was kind of joint in terms of my own personal passion, but then also trying to get some information and data in terms of what was actually happening in the game in terms of match analysis, what what distances were players covering. And so then once you knew that, kind of what program should they be doing? And equally with the, with the fitness levels, okay, these are the fitness levels. Can we improve them? And what programs, plans the players need to be doing to kind of improve those? I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm harking back to the good <laughs> old days, but there sounds like there's a, there's a sense of freedom that the university was allowing you. There was a sense of exploration and let's just go and follow our noses. As opposed to now, what I think a lot of time is, is that people have got their, their time handcuffed. If it's, if it's not paid for, then, then we're not going to do it. And yet that potentially was, was providing a, an amazing background for you and a springboard for the, the impact that you could have. Yeah, absolutely. Probably at the time, I didn't fully appreciate that. Again, Mark and I were... We're very fortunate that, um, I can't remember which year it was we went, maybe it was 2001, one of the Science of Football conferences in Sydney. So it was around about that time, 99 or 2000, that we were then able to go out there. The university funded it and actually presented some of that work that we'd done. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know enough about academia at the moment in terms of what some of their limitations are for me and my roles. I've rarely published much. Like right now, I am registered for my PhD. If I'm honest, like early on has been protecting kind of what, I don't know, what data you've got. But I think as I've, as I've got older, maybe even a little bit wiser, you're, you're open to sharing more because for me, it's, you know, you can do a certain distance or whatever in a game or get a certain fitness level, but it's more the process of how you get there. So publishing those numbers for me, I'm kind of less concerned about because it's more about the process of how you get there. But I think when you're younger and, you know, you're still learning, I, th- I think you maybe is not as aware of that and are very much protective. But the other piece is also the time to do it. Like, 
you know, I've kind of done this kind of support role now for 18, 19 years. And it's a lot of travel and, you know, having spare time to do that kind of research isn't isn't always possible. And so what were your observations of the, the England setup at the at the time then? Because that sounded quite raw. As you say, the, the introduction of support systems were was quite new. You had to probably form it yourselves, writing policies or, or actually thinking, what are we going to spend our time yeah. doing? But but in terms of the team setup and structure, what was what was it like then? I mean, again, it was a brand new support around the team. Like prior to that, it had literally been, you know, Hope Powell, her coaches, a physio, whereas now she wanted the support of the players in camp, but then out of camp as well. So, you know, she brought on myself, Louise Fawcett, Pippa Bennett, the doctor. Um, and between the three of us, we really worked together and, and looked at, I mean, I still remember my first camp and I was like, well, what is my role in camp? Like, you know, because they'd never had sports science support. So, you know, even the warm ups the coaches would do or, you know, there was no monitoring of players because that had just never been done. So, I remember my first couple of camps kind of almost you're looking at it thinking, well, like, what is my role? Like, you know, you're almost bored in terms of, well, do I have a role here? So then it was working out what that role could be. What could the support be? How could you support Hope? How could you support the medical team? How could you support the players? And then, you know, you observe a couple of camps and then go, okay, well, can we introduce this? So, you know, like I say, some of it was initially doing some basic baseline fitness test and what what status are the players at and what are they doing outside camp so even starting to look at that then putting heart rate watches on them getting them to either download that or you download it and see kind of what their trainer loads have been and you know some players would just train i remember kaz walker and she was limited running wise just like a lot of impacts on on you know lower limbs uh, throughout her career so she constantly do cross training type sessions and it was just like a steady heart rate. So again, just a simple tweak of actually do an interval, like which is more specific to the game rather than just. So again, you'd see that, and I remember using that in a number of education sessions with the players, and you know, in in various other sessions of you know comparison of just working at a steady state to then working with intervals and actually trying to replicate the the game a little bit. So a lot of it was education of players, of of hope, of the staff. Um, finding a role, finding a niche, what did that look like? What support could we offer? And and then just kind of building from there, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting one in the sense of the, having this theme of education uh, and not just not just doing and gadgets and research and interventions, but this underpinning theme of, of communicating with people, getting them engaged, helping them understand what the process is all about. Because ultimately in a support role you're not necessarily there to to make it happen all the time you can't just keep nagging them they've got to own it yeah absolutely and that's the thing for me like i would never do something where you're just doing it to satisfy a process like there's always got to be a an outcome or feedback to the player because you're right like you know they get asked to do so many things and for me what is going to be the benefit and feedback to them for their performance whether it's physical technical tactical injury prevention or whatever but there always has to be something something for the player if you're asking them to do something otherwise it for me it's it's not worth doing it unless they're you know it's going to impact them and their performance so you took this bold step to to go out west i mean do you have links out there did you have your family or do you just go right and pack in my bags i'm off i mean 
yeah no I didn't have family or links or anything <laughs> and like I've, I've, I look back at it now and I'm like wow like that was a big thing to do and but I'm quite a uh, just like a steady calm like personality where nothing really you know kind of like affects me and you just kind of roll with it a little bit so uh no like I had conversations with a family and um I remember a conversation with my dad and the salary was a bit lower than than what I was on with England, and my dad was like, "Okay, well, you, you can't even consider it. You can't go." <laughs> and I'm like, "But you know, it's an amazing opportunity. Um, I'm working with the number one team in the world, and whatever." So, uh, you know, he came around and and kind of seen that, and um, and yeah. So then I, yeah, I came out in in February 2010. Uh, I think the federation put me up in the hotel for a, for a little while. We were kind of traveling anyway, but. You know, again, looking back, it took three or four months to get a social security number because there was some some glitch with my passport. And until you have a social security number, you can't get an apartment. So, you know, it was like, I don't know, I just kind of roll with it. It, it is what it, it it is what it was. And, you know, control what you can. And after a few months, kind of got set up with with a place to live. And uh, and yeah, just kind of went from there. And I mean, it's great. But like my family can come out on on holiday and. It's a great place to come on holiday. So uh, probably see them more now than I than I did when I'm in when I when I was in England. Because in England, like you come for a weekend, whereas like now my mum will come out for three or four weeks and uh, then I'll get sick of her and shift back to England. <laughs> but she does that a few times a year. So you know, as well, it's it's kind of got that benefit for for her and and the family to come out as well. And so that's an interesting one from the point of view that your kind of underpinning personality was probably well suited to go and yeah let's give this a go and actually what you what you've just described is probably quite unsettling for most people of thinking I, I don't know whether I can stay here work here I might have to change again and that, that undermines a lot of people's work performance but you were just kind of <laughs> yeah go for it that's, that sounds like a skill but actually projecting that into the performance arena how well does that protect you when, when the pressure kind of comes on, because I think a lot of the time when I look at team sheets yep. and you think these probably aren't the people that you'd normally select for normal service delivery or supporting people, but they are steady eddies. They are people that you can depend upon. They're unflappable. They're, they, when, when an athlete starts yep. to panic and they look for those people to support, they see a they see somebody that can really steady their cut their yep. nerves. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh it's funny because obviously this this past World Cup we faced France in the quarterfinals and obviously the World Cup was in France and you know it was a big thing about you know people were like that should have been the final and you know it was a, it was a massive game like kind of when I get nervous I just go quiet um, but I don't think it's probably noticeable like noticeable how much so but it, like, kind of before the France game and then you know subsequently the England game you know people were. You just chat amongst the staff and people are like, you know, what's your prediction for the game? What's your feeling for the game? And I was just like, I just can't talk about it. So I wouldn't talk about those games. But I think it's like second to that in terms of what you're saying. I think we've had staff who come in who on game day, like in the in the locker room, in the changing room, are, you know, just over excitable. And for me, those people they don't last because you just can't be like that or you know they have to be told to tone it down because game day match day is only ever about the players and the coach and you know everybody else has just got to be quiet in the background and you know do what you need for for the players but I think kind of continuing that as well I'd say that's probably you know one thing I guess one of my 
benefits in that I know the players so well and know how each one reacts, you know, what they need at what time, whether it is on a match day, whether it's a day before, whether it's, you know, around a training session, whether it's when they've picked up an injury. I just feel like I kind of know the players so well. And yeah, some of that comes from working with them for so long. But then I also think just from you know, having the experience of working with so many different players, you just know how they react and what they need at that moment in time. And yeah, I think you're right. I think it's having a combination of of some of those energy people, although being toned down on match day, but then, you know, your calm, steady people, especially for those kind of most important moments in tournaments or games or, you know, on the bench or, you know, sometimes our coaches get excitable on the bench and, you know, you also need a calm head on there. So, uh, yeah. How was, how was your head during the England match? So, you know, and, I mean, when US play England, how is that? Is that any different for you or is that, does that start getting conflicted? I've got to admit when I've worked with a couple of athletes really closely yeah. and they're competing against each other, I found that really difficult. I found that quite quite conflicting, and I don't know what to think, who to, yeah, to yeah, win. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, we played them a few times, and actually, they've they've probably I don't know the exact count, but they've they've definitely beaten us a couple of times. I think the first time they they beat us uh, that we played them, uh, that was actually in 2011 in the lead up to the World Cup. Uh, we played, uh, uh, I think it was late in Orient, and they England won two one, and I was like. Oh dear, I've, I think I might have made the wrong movie. <laughs> but I'd never actually played them. We'd never played them competitively, like in a, you know, in a major tournament. So yeah, it was a weird, it was a weird feeling. But for me, like when you're in the job, like I'm a professional, and it's about the job. So it's you know whether it was England or I don't know, like France or Jamaica or whoever. Like for me, you're supporting the players and the team you work with. Again, I had like various group messages with with friends in England and. I'm not going to lie, I probably exited a few of those messages in the lead up to the game because I was like, I just can't get into any kind of banter about the game because, you know, it's just kind of the professional, like almost separating the professional and the personal from that. My mum for sure is is a USA fan. Uh, she actually came out to France for some of the matches and uh, kind of wore this uh, this uh, USA cowboy hat. So I was like, OK, that's my mum over there. Um, but uh, for me, I'm just kind of more even keel and, you know, I mean, after the game, I kind of went around and, and hugged all of the England players because I know I actually worked with quite a few of them. And Karen Carney, who I've known since she was 14 when she came in, she came up to me and she was already in tears and I hugged her and then I started, <laughs> you know, you just get a bit emotional because I've worked with her for a long time. So, you know, kind of afterwards hugged them and, and just told them to do well in the next game and then you kind of move on. But for me, before the game, it's just professional. And for me, I'm kind of... I'm able to just block out the fact that it's England and just do my job for the team at that time. And, you know, even watching the game, I think people afterwards ask me about what did I think about England and how they played. But I watched the game for a diff- from a different element. Like there was some of our players who were, you know, just carrying things going into the game. And, you know, also like hydration wise, I'm just looking for any player and knowing which players might need some kind of hydration stuff through the game. So you're kind of watching the game from a different element. And if I'm honest, if I look back at the number of games that I've been involved with, I don't really know how most of the games played out. I'm more watching individual players or or moments in that rather than watching the game as a fan, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And and that was something I wanted to ask you about in terms of those big moments that you mentioned, the France game, equally the final or previous finals, those big moments that really matter and and how much you're focused on on the moment, this is it. This is the big one. 
versus actually I'm I'm just getting my head down and focused on the process and 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 the numbers and the detail and the, the small subtle symptoms that you're picking out because that's that's the craft that's the tacit knowledge that you have that you mentioned that you know the players that's you at your best as opposed to getting overawed by the, the yeah moment. I mean yeah I mean it's uh, it's hard because like with the US um, we. We have two big years of competition, so it's like a, a World Cup year, then the next year's Olympics, then pretty much for two years, you're just playing friendlies. So again, like, you know, a friendly, it's it's totally different. Like, yes, it's a competitive game, but there's nothing on the outcome. So I think if I go back, because actually I've, I've worked with a team for the last three World Cups and we've been to the final every single time, but in 2011, we actually got beat. But in 2011, on the road to the... Uh, the World Cup final, we played Brazil in the quarterfinals. We took the lead early on. Then they got a penalty. We had a player sent off in the 60th minute. They equalised. We go into extra time. So we're now down to 10 players from the 60th minute. Um, they score early in extra time. And literally when the 120th minute and it's still 2-1 Brazil. And I think that's probably one of the first times I'm sat on the bench and I'm thinking we're probably all getting sacked in the morning because for the US not to progress to the semifinals would have been a failure, kind of at that tournament. And then in the 120, 20th minute, we win the ball back in our right-back spot. Brazil should have just booted the ball in the stand, play into, I mean, I can play this through every single minute, play into Carly Lloyd, out to Pino, Rapino on the left wing, and she crosses, and Abby Wombach is up there, and for the last five minutes of the game, Abby Wombach is just screaming, we just need one more chance, we just need one more chance. And literally, Rapino from the left touch line, like, arrows the ball in. And Abby has literally got the width of a ball to score in the goal because the goalkeeper's coming out, the defender's there, and she scores. So that's, like, 122nd minute. Uh, so we've equalised. I'm actually running in the locker room then to get the... You know, we're going to penalties to get, like, towels, energy gels, whatever. And then, for me, momentum, we win on penalties. And, you know, that was a massive defining moment for football in the U.S. Um, I feel like that's when the game, like, took off. I remember pictures of Times Square and the game was being shown live and stuff. And anyway, then we got on to the final. And ironically, the game went the other way where we scored, Japan equalised, we scored early in extra time and then they equalised in the 120th minute or 119, something like that. And then for me, again, momentum, Japan won on penalties and the team got back to the US and I was reading something about this the other day. It was almost like they'd won the World Cup, like the, the reception they got, I think partly the Brazil game and how they turned around. And yeah, it's those moments where you're like, this is it. But again, just keeping that even, even you know, even keel, kind of level head, the little touch to the player who might need it, the little word to the player who might need it. You know, again, like prior to this this final, I just wrote every player and staff actually a card, like, and just put it under their door. So when they woke up on the morning of the game, they just had a card. And, you know, whether that resonated anything, I don't know. But, you know, again, I think as staff, you just have to keep even and do your job. But, you know, again, just knowing going into that game, a few players were carrying things or players who hydration was maybe a bit lower or had maybe been feeling like they were about to cramp later in previous games, like just having either things on the side ready for those players or whatever they might need at halftime, really just individualising it for each player and, you know, just being aware of that throughout the game. OK, there's a couple of things there then. So um, I'm interested in the cards yeah. under the doors, so, uh, come back to that then. So the manner in which 
the US played and kind of came back, it kind of created this sort of climactic moment that the public connected with, accelerated the sport. But you're sat there thinking, I'm, I'm going to get sacked. Did you have a clearer sense of, of what you're assessed against? What are you judged against? Because clearly the public are just thinking that was, that was a moment. We're proud of, a, proud of the team. And you're thinking, I'm not keen, <laughs> not keen on that, the, uh, the, the result going that way. I want, it, I want to score through that, that tiny space. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at the time, again, like the federation, like now there's a high-performance department. Back then, there wasn't a high-performance department. So it was literally the head coach, the assistant coach, the goalkeeper, myself, the goalkeeper coach, myself, who were pretty much kind of linked in our roles. And I think that's where, you know, like for me, it would have been failure if, if the US hadn't hadn't reached the semi-final and and kind of I guess that was the that was just the thought process there and then it's you know kind of we won that game and you know just kind of so much elation afterwards and you know the next day we got to the next venue and and Pierre just held a meeting and just had every player just talk about what they felt or or remembered from that game and then literally just parked that game and was like okay we've now got a semi-final against France and we had one day less and we had to get recovered and get back for the, we played extra time with 10 players and you know we had another game to play in whatever it was two days time and so she just kind of parked that there and then we moved on so yeah, like I'm not going to lie, that was my thought in that moment on that, you know, you're going into injury time in extra time. So, you know, it's like, okay, there's not much time left here and Brazil have got the ball in the corner and then we managed to steal it and boom, like within 60 seconds, it's like turned around. And how are you with that prospect of uncertainty, I suppose, volatility to performance? A lot of people in sports performance, I think a lot of people in the performing arts, a bad performance can mean actually this I'm, I might not be working soon as a consequence of that how how do you cope with that on a day-to-day basis yeah I mean I think it's uh yeah I mean obviously it is a factor um I think obviously the the fact the team have had a, a bit more success in 15 and 19 uh would hope that that means the role is a little bit more secure again I feel like a bit like how premiership teams do now like with the uh, US Soccer now we've had a high performance department since 2017 so now kind of sitting in that department not that I was ever like my contract isn't necessarily directly linked to the head coach but I think definitely having like the high performance department I think the head coach might also bring in their own person you know I think is is one thing you know obviously worked with with Jill Ellis who now has announced that she's leaving since 2014 Mm. so you know, I think we had a very good kind of working relationship and, um, you know, she gave me autonomy, but also she would, you know, there's some things I would ask to do and she wouldn't let me do. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, when you're young and inexperienced, you get annoyed and um, maybe it's a bit moody with that. Whereas, you know, as you learn and grow, it's like, okay, well, at the end of the day, like she's a head coach and she gets a final decision. So I can give her whatever recommendations I think, but she gets to decide whether we do or we don't. So, I don't know if that answered that question. I don't know if I went off pat a bit there. Yeah, no, that, uh, absolutely. And, and that sense of, well, it's gone in the direction of just recognising your place in the team. I think as well, like in 2011, like I'd been in the role for 18 months. So I think that probably played into that thinking as well a little bit. And even the, sorry, I've kind of interjected there, even the actual qualification for that World Cup. So we, again, with, with um, in Europe, qualification is like home and away basis, um, like a, a group or whatever. Here, it's very different. You literally, it's like a two-week tournament where you have eight teams, two 
two leagues and you literally play everybody in the in the group and then have a semi-final and a final to then qualify. So in 2010, qualification for the World Cup was held in Mexico. In this, in two teams were guaranteed to go to the World Cup. The third place team would have to go to a playoff in Italy. And again, like the US were expected to, you know, to easily qualify. Semi-final, we played Mexico in Mexico. Mexico beat us. So now that meant Mexico and uh, ended up being Canada qualified automatically for the World Cup. But the US, we ended up having to play, geez, I think Costa Rica in the in the third, fourth playoff to then qualify to play in a in a World Cup playoff against Italy. So again, like that was a massive swerve ball. And, you know, I admitted as well, and I think that was a real reality check for a lot of players in that a lot of people had booked like flights to go off on holiday, like straight after that. And I'd booked a flight back to England and suddenly it was actually, we've got to go and play in Italy in four days time and then come back in Chicago. It was a two leg thing and play again to even qualify for the World Cup. And, you know, I think at the time it was, it was a big reality check for a lot of people in that we can't just assume things. And because uh, literally we were in Mexico, so we had to fly back home because everybody had to repack and whatever. And then I was with like a, a group flying from L.A. out to um, come and we went in Italy, but we had to fly through Paris and we had like a six hour layover. And I remember the the whole six hours of the layover, Abby Wombat was in that group and she was like, we deserve this. This is our fault. We deserve this. And I just think that for me was a was a big grounding thing for this team and all of those players for the years ahead. And I actually think it was a good thing. And, you know, I think there's that term where you learn some of your greatest lessons from defeat. And I certainly had personally learned from that. And I know a lot of players did. And, uh, you know, a lot of players changed from that moment and didn't maybe just assume certain things and were for sure more humble on the back of what we went through there. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Kate Richardson Walsh, the England and GB hockey player, she she talks about how they learned after not winning the gold medal at the London 2012 yeah. Games and that, that propelled them to saying, we're not going to have that yeah. again. This is, this is now our, our new path. Yeah. So you hinted to the differences there with, in US football um, in understanding how it, how it runs for the US leagues and versus internationally and what your responsibilities are. So two-thirds of uh, the listeners to the podcast are UK-based, quarter US, so they probably already know. So just fill us in a little few, de- few details. Here, over here with Premier League football, we're used to the men's game assigned to their clubs and then they get handed over to the international team just last minute for a few weeks and then they, they take up. So how does it work for you and what your responsibility yep. is across that game? Yeah, sure. Currently, it's the it's the National Women's Soccer League, NWSL. So it's our third professional league. The first two kind of folded um, due to funding and not being able to kind of survive and last. So then this one, it's the seventh year. So it's the longest league ever to survive professionally over here. So that started seven years ago. I guess that's, that's probably one of the, the things I'm kind of pretty proud of in terms of the sports science support that we've got on the league. So again, there's a couple of things. Uh, US soccer are a part involved in the run of the league. Also, we have, I think it's 25, but don't quote me on that. Like we fund US soccer centralized contracts for, I think it's 20 or 25 of our players and they play in the league and then they kind of get a bit of a top up NWSL wise. So in some ways we work very closely with the league on those players 
because in essence, they're kind of US soccer players also playing in the NWSL. So in two, whenever seven years ago, when the league first came in, each club literally would have head coach and then probably another member of staff who worked roles from assistant coach to uh, goalkeeper coach to maybe he's part of the fitness, but there was no dedicated sports scientist or high-performance coaches, fitness, whatever you want to call us. So that first year, I would literally travel around to the clubs and just try and help and support the coaches, try and say, hey, can you even, you know, ask players how they feel in the morning, do a paper and pencil wellness, get an RP of training because there was no monitoring of training or or anything like that. So that was kind of the first couple of years. 2015, when we won the World Cup, actually the night of the World Cup final, ended up having a conversation with Jay Berhalter, who is at the US Soccer. It was kind of along the lines of like, obviously, congratulations, won. What can we do better? One of my big things was we need to help the league, support the league more. And we need to know what our players are doing outside of national team camps. So basically, he sanctioned us, providing every club with GPS system, also brought in full-time support to work with me across the league. So Andy Gard came in in 2015, then he moved on a couple of years later to work on the boys' side. And now I've got uh, Julian Haig, uh, who also came through John Moores, who helps me across the league. So their role is NWSL kind of sports scientist. So with that, every club has a GPS system. We kind of help and train them on it. And we've now grown from having nobody, no support, to now it being that they mandatory that they have to have a certain qualified kind of sports scientist full-time with their team. Every year we bring them in at the start of the year, either update or train on the GPS system if they're new to it, and then just kind of cover various topics. So, you know, anything we've ranged from sleep, hydration, nutrition, to menstrual cycle this year, and then throughout the year, we just try and host webinars for the for the guys in the league just to kind of keep them for their own CPD because they, you know, some of their roles are brutal, especially with the travel of the league. And, you know, some of them don't have great resources. We also every year go out to the league and, and carry out a battery of fitness tests. And so, again, we've done that since 2016. And again, that's not necessarily for us to see the data. It's to give back to the clubs and go, hey, you know, this is first week of preseason. This is the fitness levels of your, of your players. I mean, it, it also now serves that we get the data on our national team players, you know, as well. If, if a coach is looking, if national team coaches is looking for a player and she wants kind of all the U.S. player you know, fitness numbers, she can have those and see kind of where, you know, if she's looking at a certain player at a certain club and she's like, hey, what's the speed of that player or what is their endurance or strength or whatever, you know, we we can kind of share that with her as well. So it's kind of grown like that. So like I say, after after the World Cup, uh, we send back the the GPS data from the players for, for the last, whatever, they were in, in camp with us for 50 days. So give that back to the clubs. We also have a shared wellness platform. So again, the players will complete that kind of online and app and then the clubs have access and we have access to it. I mean, I'm not going to lie with that wellness. We shut it down for the clubs during the World Cup because the players are reporting injury, illness and so on. And that data shouldn't be given out. You know, we were we were kind of locked down yeah. in camp in terms of injuries of players. Um, we hit the Rapino injury pretty well for the for the semi-final. So, you know, for me, like at that time, the clubs didn't need access. But as soon as the players were heading back to the clubs, they got access again. For me, it works both ways in that we ask for data from them. We just had a camp. We finished on Sunday and Monday morning. 
I've sent out the, the loads for the players back to the clubs and any recommendations for players. So it sounds quite similar to a lot of the rugby union sort of setup, where it was almost like part ownership. Uh, ownership's not quite the right yeah. word, but yeah. payment that the national federation funds players, but, but equally they're responsible to their club. Presumably you would sort of withdraw them at that at some point where the club might suffer a little bit because they're, they're not around. But does that mean that you've got to be a politician as well in terms of stakeholder management and the sort of making sure there's a reciprocal arrangement between the different partners that are involved? Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, that's probably more discussions like coach to coach with that um, in terms of players being released. Sometimes we do ask for the players outside of the FIFA windows, which is obviously the biggest thing. Like even this past game was, was, a, was a game outside of the, the FIFA window. But again, some of those discussions are held at the ownership level of of the NWSL clubs and the executive staff of US Soccer and you know they agree to all of that stuff like right at the start of the season like it doesn't just throw up now so even you know the plan for for the players prior to the World Cup like we took them out of their clubs at the end of April so again we had kind of all of May June going into the World Cup with the players so again that was something initially where Myself, head coach, team administrators sat down and looked at the schedule and looked at the optimal of when we'd want the players, like how many games did we want them playing in the NWSL before the World Cup. So we then proposed that to the US soccer execs and then they take that to the NWSL kind of ownership board and either have a discussion around it or <laughs> say, this is what we're going to do, <laughs> whichever way uh, kind of that works. So, uh, but it's, you know, for me, hopefully it's also a win-win, like, since players have come back from the World Cup and, you know, it's been successful. We won like some of the a lot of the games have been sold out already. Even Sky Blue, who play it, who usually play at Rutgers uh, University, which is like a 5000 stadium, have just announced their next game against uh, Seattle Rain will be at the Red Bull Stadium, which is a 25000 compared to 5000 capacity. So. You know, like that's great. I mean, Portland anyway. Their average crowd for it for a season is is twenty thousand fans. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. You know, like you've got to say that surely on the back end, the owners appreciate and see as well, kind of the the outcome of of kind of the, the front end and releasing those players, and you know, then kind of that being successful on the back end. Yeah, that's that's certainly going to uplift the whole sport in that sense. But that's you mentioned twenty eleven for. US football, but it seems as though the last World Cup was resurgent for international interest. A bit like the a bit like the Paralympics were in 2012, where before actually it was quite patchy, not not particularly consistent. You might have some nations that would really get behind a particular sport, but it seems as though this summer and the tournament was it just exploded the interest. What were your observations from sort of in the lead up to to within that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think, again, like you look back at 2011 and ironically for 2011-15-19, our final game before we've gone off to the World Cup has always been at Red Bull Stadium. And I think in 11, we got a crowd of about 5,000 and then 15-19, we sold it out, 25,000. So again, I think that jump from 11 to 15 was testament to that. You know, I think the other thing which, uh, which US Soccer have done very well is uh, every February, March, we used to go to Portugal and play in a tournament. Again, one thing that Jill kind of asked for after 2016 Olympics was that we played 
the best teams in the world consistently every year. So on the back of that, US Soccer started hosting two tournaments a year where in the March, um, it's called She Believes Tournament, and it's uh, historically been against England, France, Germany. So again, some of the best teams, European teams in the world. And then they host the second one in August, which again has been against Japan, Brazil, Australia. Again, three of the other better teams in the world. So, you know, I think twofold on the back of that. One is it's great for the for the women's national team because they're playing the best teams in the world consistently. And then the other piece is I just think it continues to ride the wave of interest in the US and, you know, the size of crowds and, and so on. And, you know, people here in the US getting to see the teams, the best teams in the world consistently, you know, be it the US team, but then, you know, some of those other teams that I've just mentioned. And And how's that within the camp in terms of, You've now got global icons, <laughs> whereas before I couldn't name members of your team necessarily. Now, Rapino and others, you know, they're global icons now, aren't they? How does that change the dynamic and the psychology of the, of the team? I mean, we've only had one camp so far, so maybe watch this space on that one. <laughs> You know, I think historically, I think Carly Lloyd on the back of, I mean, on the back of 11, I think, uh, you know, Abby Wombach was was um, bigger already. But I think Alex Morgan kind of made us stamp a little bit. And then uh, I think on the back of 15, Carly Lloyd with a 15 minute hat trick in the final. You know, I think her name was was kind of bigger. Um, you know, obviously everything that's happened this year with, with Rapino, you know, kind of on and off the field. I think like kind of wait to see on that one, I think. Yeah, that's probably not for me to comment right now. And it's a bit of transition anyway with, with changing coach and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think the players, yeah, they do that stuff off the field. But then I think they also know what got them that exposure and, you know, are fully committed to wanting to be better players. You know, Alex Morgan, most days at national team camp, I'm having to wrestle the ball off her at the end of training because she wants to kind of do more finishing because she wants to be even better than she is already. So, these players still want to get better. So I think that that's exciting as well. I don't think any of them are like, I've made it, I can just ride this for the next year. Like we're only a month out after the World Cup and they're all back in training. So, I, you know, I don't think we've got an issue on that, on that score. I think they're kind of fully committed to getting back to it. So looking forward and so you, you, you've got the girls moving again, you're, you're planning a bit of a break potentially. How do you sustain performance? Because it's literally sustaining performance at that top end of, of the, if you're not winning, you're expected to win. Uh, what next? How do you take that forward and keep that energy? I mean, I think this team has always had that, like since 99 and probably even before that, where they're expected to win. So I just think that's always a big pressure anyway, and they have that every single game. And that's not being arrogant. That's just how it is. So I think they deal well with that. And, you know, I've been asked that about, I've, I've been asked about that before in terms of, you know, what separates the US from other teams. And, you know, I don't think it's a secret. I think part of the mental toughness is, and, and you know, Jill even spoke about it, Jill Ellis spoke about it yesterday, that, like the heart of the team in that when England got the penalty in the second half of the game and they could have tied it to 2-2, players' heads weren't on the floor. It was like, okay, we deal with this. And even if England score, like we've still got 10 minutes to score or, you know, we're still in this. And, you know, I've even seen that grow from 2011 in terms of like just players mental toughness i think some of it is the college system here and how brutal and intense that is and you've got to be tough to survive that i think also the size of the country and the number of players if you're not competitive and don't have that that element 
you're probably not going to survive and you know succeed anyway so you know I think I think players still want to get better I think you know for me I always look at every element of a player's performance and for one player it might be something physically they can improve on for another it might be their lifestyle for another it might be technical tactical so I don't think any of them have got everything right. <laughs> so I think there's something you can always tweak with any of them. So I think, you know, we see out the end of cell season, they'll eventually get a break at the end of that. And then, you know, we've got we've got two more international games at the end of this month, two more September, and then two more, I think, in November. And then, you know, after that, the team have got Olympic qualification in January. Like, we haven't qualified for the Olympics. People speak about the Olympics, and I'm like... We haven't qualified. Like once we qualify, we can speak about the Olympics. Mm. Uh, fascinating. So, uh, ask you a couple of quick questions then uh, to start wrapping up. What's your What's your best moment? Well, I think one of the biggest ones was beating France in the quarterfinals because that was that was such that was massive. You know, like the host nation, they'd beat us in the January. Like we went to France and they beat us two. I think 2 nil. I don't remember the score. Two nil in a friendly in the January, and you know there was just a lot of pressure. So to beat them in France and when when they scored a goal in the second half, the noise of that crowd was like, oh, geez. And the way the players just kind of controlled the game to see it out was was phenomenal. So I think that was probably close second is is the Abbey Wombach goal against Brazil. Like that was just a phenomenal moment, to be honest. What's your most important lesson that you've learned over the years? Oof. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Uh, I mean... For me, there's a couple. One is trust. Anybody who kind of I work with, I like to have kind of trust both ways. Like for me, working with the, the women's national team, it's, it's an honor because they're like amazing athletes, amazing soccer players, amazing humans. You know, I think trust and whoever comes into that environment and working with them. So I think you've got to earn that trust. But then for me also, you know, I think I have to chill out a little bit because for many years I did this role on my own. And at times it is hard to give up and and trust somebody else with with doing that. So like I've had to learn myself and be a better leader manager of that and let go of some of those things. So yeah, I think probably something along those lines. I don't know if that directly answers it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Trust both ways. I think that's um that's a lovely lovely principle to to work to. Trust doesn't work one way. It sounds it sounds like you're drawing on your physics background for Newton's third law there, but uh, <laughs> I mean even at the World Cup we had we had thirty plus staff supporting the team, which was like a massive increase from fifteen. Like some of it with the uh, with the development of the high performance department, and you know even in that like everybody's got an opinion, and you know that's great. But as well like what information goes to the player has to be consistent, and I think that's where there has to be a massive element of trust amongst everybody that it's consistent. Do, do you have a mantra that you work and live by? Control the controllables. So in terms of not getting wound up by stuff, like I can only ever control what I say, do or action. I can't control however anybody might speak to me or or how they might react to that. So that's probably one of my biggest ones. And I think on that as well, reflect like how I'm going to speak to somebody. If somebody spoke to me like that, how would I react? So I think, again, that's come a lot of like over the last few years, having other people involved in the system and, and letting go of <laughs> of the role and, and certain things. And I think, you know, that's just something I continually kind of say to myself. Mm. And so what's what's next for you in 
Dawn, you, you, you've already got you talking about the process and Olympics and qualification, but what about you personally? What's the what's the next challenge for you? Climb Machu Picchu. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Oh, well, that sounds that sounds like it's got a spiritual <laughs> and a, a timeout, no signal reception yeah. type of yeah. yeah <laughs> adventure. I think on a, on a personal take a break, probably try and do that. I think other elements, I don't know. I mean, uh, like I say, there's um, the coaches is leaving from the team, so. Uh, you know, I think there's going to be a little bit of change and transition within U.S. soccer and, you know, just see how, you know, how this role might evolve in terms of this World Cup. I'm still on the field doing warm ups and, and things like that and, you know, how this potentially might evolve and, you know, have somebody younger <laughs> doing those roles and uh, and whatever. So uh, there's going to be a lot of change at, at the Federation and, uh, yeah, just see how this role might evolve or, or progress based on the back of some of those things but yeah well fantastic thank you so much for taking the time out it's just it's been brilliant to to hear the insights and how you're managing all those performance moments but equally focusing on the process and so it's been great to catch up with you Dawn so but congratulations to everything you and the team have achieved it's been amazing to watch from from a distance thank you Steve well thank you I really appreciate you reaching out for me to uh to be on here and uh yeah it was great to catch up yeah relive some of those worcester days and uh yeah just talk through some of some of the process so thank you very much to you as well you can follow dawn on twitter at dawn scott 06 you can follow us on twitter at support underscore champs and me at ingham underscore steve you can also follow us on facebook and instagram under supporting champions and subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes.